We are into week three of our uh, emoji series, Mind Blown uh, Emoji Series. What we're talking about here is the parables of Jesus. Now this, in your Bible, is the good stuff. It's all good, but this is the, the rich stuff. It's the really good stuff, okay? Um, I would guess the parables have been a part of the Bible that you've probably read the least and probably heard taught the least. The reason for that is the parables take time. You can't just kind of skim through the parables. See, there are passages of Paul where he tells you things to do and things not to do, and it seems pretty easy to kind of dig it out of it. But see, there are things, especially with the teachings of Jesus, that take time. And as you guys have experienced in life, the most valuable things in life are the ones that take investment, the ones that take time. In the scriptures, these are the places that you want to slow down. You want to kind of move a little bit slower. You want to Go over it and over it and allow yourself to kind of chew on it a little bit. These are the ones that it takes time to kind of dig up the gold in these parables. So in the parables, sometimes we get frustrated with them because they don't read at face value. You can't just skim the surface and get it. There has to be some more work done. And so what happens with the parables is this. We always want to phrase it this way. Imagine if. Imagine a place where this blah, 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 blah happens, okay? When Jesus is talking about these parables, he's almost always describing what the kingdom of heaven is like. And what that means is he's describing what it's like when God is in control. If God were the one who, who was in control of everything, if he took control of this moment, what would this space look like? What would he change, right? If you guys have, uh, have homes, and before you had your, uh, your first home, you would always have these ideas of what you would do in your first house. Did anyone have that idea? Well, see, my parents did this, but I'm going to do it this way. Did you ever say anything like that? It's going to be like that, okay. Or you had bosses and you said, man, whenever I'm the boss, I'm going to do things this way. Whenever I get my car, I'm going to... Okay. All right, so we've all had some, some experience in life, right? There's, there's this thing inside of us that it's going to be done my way. The parables are where Jesus says, when I'm in control, when it's my house, when, it, when I am the one who controls everything, this is how it's going to be. It's going to be done my way. Imagine a place where. And the parables can only really be understood if you kind of use your imagination. You have to engage in it. You have to put yourself in it. You have to kind of walk around it a little bit. What would this place be like if? And so the first one we start with this morning is the unjust judge. Now, what's so weird about this parable is that God puts himself into one of these characters. Who is God in this parable? Should I read it again? He is the judge. Who is what? Unjust. God puts himself in the what seat? He, he, God puts himself as the bad guy. In this story. Who is the jerk who doesn't care about God, who doesn't care about anyone else around him, who only cares about what he cares about? Who is this person in the story? Say it. God. Okay, God starts by saying this. Imagine a world where God is the bad guy. How does that feel? Do you feel like you're in trouble already for thinking about that? What if God is the bad guy? I can't think that. God's never bad. Never, never, never bad. God's always good. Come on, there we go. He starts this out 
by saying, okay, imagine this. Imagine a place where God is like a bad judge. And this judge doesn't care what God thinks because, you know, if God is God, he has no other God, right? Because that would be a mind bender. Okay, we'll move on. And so imagine if God's like a judge and he has no one else bigger than him who he's concerned with. And yet he doesn't care about the people who are smaller than, than him either. He just cares about his own life. And so here comes this widow. Now, if you're comparing a judge, a judge is, is typically a male, right, who has lots of what? Power. Say it. Power, right? And he's comparing this judge to a, a widow. Now, in this culture, at this time in history, a female widow, someone whose husband has left her or who has died, she is considered the bottom of the world. Okay? She doesn't have an income. She can't make anything. She only is able to be taken care of off of what people give her. Okay? She has no ability to improve her situation in the world. She is powerless. If the judge is powerful, the widow is powerless. Here we go. And so we have this comparison here. So in what way, shape, or form is the widow able to make the judge do anything? She can't. She has no control. She has no power. She's powerless in the situation. And so it says this. Imagine if this judge doesn't care about anyone but himself. But this widow would not leave him alone. Continue to come back and to come back and to come back and to come back. It would never cease pleading her case. And her case is this. Help me because I have nothing. If the widow comes every day and says, help me because I have nothing. And over and over and over again. This in some way, shape, or form has the ability to change the opinion of the judge. So what does this do for us? Okay, put yourself in a situation where you have no power, no influence, no control. You have nothing to, you cannot change your surroundings. Now, um, who likes the uh, promotional like self-help books? Anyone? Like, you can do this, think positive, try harder, think outside the box. Anybody like that kind of stuff? Amen. All right, we've got some Joel Osteen fans in here. That's okay. Think positive, think happy thoughts, put that, that, you know, I do believe in pixie dust, just sprinkle it all around you. I believe I can fly, I believe I can fly. And you will, yeah, okay. Imagine if there's no pixie dust. Imagine if there's nothing you could ever do to change your situation. You are powerless. What do you have? What can you do? And what we see here, the question that's being posed in the first part of this parable is this. What if God had no obligation to save you? What if, imagine a place where God had no obligation to save you. There was nothing pulling on God to do anything for you. It wasn't this God of amazing love or grace. This is just a God who is indifferent towards you, has no obligation towards you. Imagine a place where God has no obligation to save you. The only thing that moves this God is perseverance. It's not strength. It's not money. It's not influence. It's not connections. It's not intelligence. It's not education. The only thing that moves this God is perseverance. How would this change the way that you see this God? Imagine this. If you were this widow, imagine this. What if God was your only hope? 
Now, I know that sentence just kind of bounced off all of you. I want you to sit in that for a second. If your world began to fall apart, how would you try to fix it? There are people you would turn to. There are resources you would try to do. You would sell your house. You would, you would, you know, pull out of your savings. You would use your intellect. You would try to figure it out. You all have ways that you would try to fix something that's broken. But imagine if you literally had nothing at all. Here's the hardest part of this parable for you to get, for every one of you in this room to get. It doesn't matter how hard your situation is, it's not hard enough to relate to the parable. Imagine a situation where you are absolutely powerless. The only people in this room who can probably relate to this is if you have faced some kind of a life-threatening illness or if your child has faced some kind of a life-threatening illness. This might be the closest you can come to this. There's nothing you can do to change it. You have no control. You have no options. All you can do is hope. That's it. Instantly, I've cut down the number of people in this room who can relate to the parable. This is why the parable is hard for you and hard for me to get. Imagine if you had no other option. The only choice you had was to hope or to give up hope. And that's the only option you had. How would that change the way that you see God? How would that change the way that you pray? How would that change the way that you pursue God? What this parable is trying to wash over you is this. How would you live if God was your only hope? There's a line down here at the bottom of this this parable. It says this. In verse 7, And will not God bring about justice for His chosen ones who cry out to Him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? Verse 8. I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, anytime you see a word like however, you need to pay attention. However, comma, that's for drama, it says this. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? I'll translate this. When, he, when, when Jesus returns, are there still going to be people who are waiting on him? Here's how this looks for you. When you have no other options, if the judge is your only hope, you will never stop continually going to that judge. But here's the thing. Imagine if you had a friend who was also a judge. And this judge told you no. Would you go to a different judge? Anybody. Imagine if you had a rich, rich friend or a cousin who had tons of money, and the judge told you no, the court's not going to give you money to take care of you, would you go to your rich friend? Come on, nod. Imagine if you had a PhD degree, and you could just go back to work. Would you continue to go back to the court every day, or would you say, okay, forget that, it's not going to work, I'm going to go to find a job. Would you do that? Okay, Are you seeing it? Imagine if you had $100,000 in a savings account, but the judge would not allow you to get food stamps. Are you going to go to the judge every single day, or are you going to go to that savings account? I didn't want to do this, but I'm going to have to do this. Are 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 you here? Are you getting it? Imagine this. The only reason she goes back isn't because she's faithful. It's not because she's spiritual. It's because she has no other hope. You cannot relate to that right now. But this is what we need to relate to. It's saying this, God desires for us to relate to him 
as if we had no other hope. How would you pray if you had no other hope? How would you emotionally connect to God? I mean, how much of your anger or fear or dread would you hold back from God if you had nothing else to go to? There's a place of desperation that this parable is trying to tell you. It's saying you don't really hope in God. You really hope in all of these other things. What you really hope in is your own ability. What you really hope in is your intelligence. What you really hope in is your, your, your money or your president or your name it. That's where your hope really is. Because if you go to the judge and you pray for something great to happen and nothing happens, you've got options. When Jesus returns, who is the one, who's going to be left on the earth who's actually waited, saying you are our only hope? All right, let's continue. Well, if that didn't hit you, let's go to the next one. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. See, there are, there are other options that we can have. How about this? What this one does, it takes us to a place where we see two different types of people. The Pharisee, the tax collector. The first thing that you have to do is well, you have to take off that mindset of seeing the Pharisee as the bad guy. The parable has already not working for you. You're not getting it right. If, if you see the, the Pharisee as the bad guy in the story, you're already misunderstanding this parable. Understand this. We've been taught for years and years that Pharisees are the bad guys, okay? In this parable, the Pharisee is the good guy. Okay, the Pharisee is the person who fears God, who doesn't sin, who spends their life in prayer reading the Scriptures. Does that sound like a bad person to you? Everyone's like, I want to, I don't know what to say. The tax collector is the person who lives in willful choosing sin every day of their life. They know what they do is wrong. They choose it anyway. Is that what you've been told is the good guy or the bad guy? Okay. Let's be honest this morning. The Pharisee is the good guy in the story, not the bad guy. The Pharisee has every right, every single right to say, at least I'm not a willful sinner like that sinner. And it says, it says, uh, one of the different sinners, he says, the Pharisee, in verse 11, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, are you a robber? How many people have you mugged this week? Are you glad that you are more sinless than the person who robbed someone this week? Come on, be honest. I'm more Christian than that guy. Okay. Evildoers, okay, that, 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 that's pretty broad adulterers. Now, I don't expect any hands, okay? Who has cheated on their spouse this week? Please don't raise your hand. <laughs> Just saying. Are you glad that you are not someone who willfully chose to sin against your spouse and God cheating this week? Are you more sinless than that person? Everyone goes, I ain't, I ain't nodding on that one. All right. Or even like this tax collector. Now, what's beautiful about this is that tax collector doesn't work at all for us because there's not many of us who see people who work for the IRS as bad guys. Do you see people who work for the IRS as going to hell? We'll have to cut this off the video, don't? <laughs> it doesn't work for us, right? But this is how they saw it. Because if you, if you are a tax collector, you're working with Rome, okay, to extort us, to steal from us, to take what's ours. 
Now, I want you to fill in the blank. What is that type of sinner that you know is, is going straight to the pit of hell? What is that sin? Someone who hurts children? How about that? How about that? Fill in the blank. What is that sin for you? At least I'm not like... Fill it in. And here's how it goes. Who ends up being the bad guy? How does this end up being flipped around? The parable ends up going like this. The person who is honest enough to say, I am broken and sinful. I, am, I have nothing. I have no right to claim grace or mercy from you whatsoever. I am absolutely a mess. This person is the one who God hears the prayer. The person over here who tends to have every single right to say, at least I'm not full of sin, like that one. The brother who says, at least I'm not covered in pig feces. Surely I'm allowed at the table. Who is the one who God hears their prayers? That one. See, there are multiple things that we hope in, that we find security in. I'm told this a lot about grace. I'm told, hey, if you preach that grace gospel, uh, Devin, uh, you're a little too soft. What you have to understand about grace is this. The way Jesus teaches grace, the only way for you to stand on this stable platform of safety called grace is that you have to step off of every other platform. You cannot feel confident in yourself with God because of your understanding or because of your success, or your sinlessness, or because of your studies of the Scripture, or because of how good of a person you are, the only way to feel secure in grace is to step off of every other thing. And the only way to feel secure in the grace of God is to acknowledge that you are no different from any person around you. At least I'm not like, I'm exactly like. The reason the grace gospel is the most difficult, scary thing in the world is because we have to hope on grace alone. We cannot find security in our amazing, awesome choices or our spirituality or our money or our success or our intelligence or our education. The only safety of grace comes when you have no other hope. I want you to see here. Luke is stringing together all these parables, but they all have the same theme. Anyone who hopes in any other thing, whether it's a religious hope, whether it is a success-driven hope, whether it is a, a hope that comes from being comfortable in this life, if you have any other hope that you live your life on, you're already on shaky ground. The people in every one of these parables who is safe, who is safe with God, the people who have nothing left, they have no right to be safe, no right to even hope for God to move on them. What's beautiful about this is it continues. So he goes straight from the person, the widow who has nothing, but she's safe. He goes straight to the Pharisee who has every religious reason. You have to get this. This is the best Christian you've ever met in your life. You have never met a Christian in your life who obeyed God the way the Pharisees did. Not a single one. Take the best pastor, spiritual leader, the, uh, the guy who writes the books you just think are so amazing. They have nothing to hold next to the ordinary average Pharisee. Those people knew exactly how to live a sinless life. They're experts at it. 
And he goes on to this next thing. And then, for some reason, he goes right from the parable of the Pharisees. He talks about children. So here's, these, here's Jesus and these children being brought up to him. And he makes a statement. He says, only those who come to the kingdom of heaven like a child are those who will receive the kingdom. Hold on to that thought. There's another parable I didn't have us read this morning because I don't, I, I don't know if we could sit through the whole thing. But it takes us to the next parable, the parable of the rich young ruler. Who's ever heard of this parable before? Now, again, the rich young ruler is not a bad guy. Understand, at this time in Jewish history, someone with great wealth who also obeys Torah, it's viewed that the reason that they're wealthy is because God is blessing. Okay? So the reason that the rich young ruler has money is not because he's just so awesome at business. It's because he's such a holy, righteous person. Okay? I'll, I'll say it like this. They also believe that someone who was sick, lepers are the most kind of dominant example. They believe that someone who was sick had some kind of a terrible um, illness or disease or even bad luck. Say, uh, um, like a tower falls on you. What kind of bad luck do you have to have to have a tower fall on you? Bad, right? Anybody? Okay. There's an overpass that, that uh, fell down in St. Paul, Minnesota about five years ago. There's a pastor who wrote that this happened because of the glory of God. Same concept. Those who had the, 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 this, this, the overpass of I-49 fall on them, they're probably sinning. Have you ever had the idea that someone who had cancer or AIDS or some other, well, it's the result of their behavior. This is the same concept. The idea is that someone who is blessed in this world is righteous and holy. Someone who is cursed in this world is sinful. And here's what Jesus does. Here comes the rich young ruler. He's the good guy. He's sincere. He's not, out, he's not out to trick anyone. He's not out to hurt anyone. He is a sincere, good person trying to make God happy. And he comes to Jesus and he asks this question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Who here knows the answer from Jesus? Anybody? Two people. Amen. He says what? Go and sell everything you own and the kingdom is yours. Now, I'm not looking you know, at the Forbes Top 100 in this room. Amen? Okay. I'm not looking at, like, billionaires in this room, am I? If you are, you better stink and start tithing. Right? Okay. I'm just saying. If you've been holding that on me. I'm not a very rich person. But if Jesus told me this morning to have the kingdom of heaven, go sell everything you own. I don't have a lot, but that's going to hurt. I have no idea what life is like with nothing. It doesn't matter how poor you are this morning, you could have less. The cost is everything. I mean, honestly, it feels like Jesus is being very unfair to this man. So a guy who's tried his best to be sinless, he spent hours and years in prayer in the scriptures trying to obey God, trying to take care of people around him. This is a guy who looks like a pretty darn good Christian. And you're saying, everything that you own, sell it right now. I want you to see something. The gospel writers, whether Mark, Matthew, Luke, or John, these guys are not just like writing fiction, but they are 
how do you say this? They edit. They are editors, which means they are taking things and ordering them in a certain way. How about this? Have you ever had to go to, to your boss or a parent to ask for something that you really wanted, but you were afraid that they're going to say no? Anybody? Come on. Help me out. Yes. Okay. Did you think it over how you wanted to phrase it? I'm going to start out by talking about the day, and then I'm going to make a joke, you know, just kind of get them loosened up, and then right when everything's warm and comfy, I'm going to pose the question. So, honey, how, you know, how's your day going? Want to go shopping this weekend? Well, I'd like to go skiing with the guys next month. <laughs> Slipping in there. <laughs> It'll be 10 days. I'll be gone for a while. <laughs> you okay with the kids for 10 days? You know, you got to warm them up first, right? The editors of the gospel are ordering things in different ways. See, Luke puts certain parables together, whereas Matthew separates those and puts them in other parts. Matthew creates this entire scene where Jesus hits all these parables in a row, but Luke takes them and puts them in other ways. The editors are not trying to make things up. They're trying to communicate parts of Jesus that they think are crucial for us to understand. The reason Luke pairs these parables the way he does is there is a correlation. There is a connection he's trying to make for us. Here's what it is. <clears throat> the point with the, with the rich young ruler is pretty simple. It's the same one that all the other ones are saying. What if, what if your money or your success or your intelligence or your circumstance in life would not let you sleep at night? Imagine if you had the opposite. Imagine if you didn't have a comfortable life right now. How would that change things for you? It's the same thread that goes through all three of these parables. The widow, the Pharisee, the rich young ruler. It's this. How would you interact with God if you had nothing else? Because the challenge for the rich young ruler was not money. Money is not a bad thing. It's this. When you have money, education, success, intelligence, connections, friends, whatever it is you want to label it, when you have these things, you always have another option. If God doesn't come through, I've always got this. And the point being made in all of this is all hinged together with this little story that Luke puts in there. What is sandwiched by all the parables? What happens right in the middle? I'm glad I'm teaching so well this morning. Children. He slips this odd little, he goes parable, parable, and then he talks one sentence about children and then parable. It's this. Only those who enter the kingdom of heaven like children. Only those who enter like children. What is it like to be a child? <laughs> when you were four years old and you had a need, when you were four years old and you were scared, when you were four years old and you were name it. Who did you turn to? You had one source for everything in your life. See, Jude is seven now, and he's also Jude. So what that means is he thinks he doesn't need anybody for anything. 
He thinks that he knows everything and that he will teach me things. And he just thinks that he is like self-sufficient in every way. He is the kid who, who taught himself to tie a shoe in like 10 minutes. Just sat there just over and over and over and over. When he was, I wouldn't say four, when he was two, he couldn't do that yet. He couldn't do that yet. The concept of taking care of himself was not even in his world. If mom or dad can't fix it, if mom or dad can't get it, there is no one else in a child's universe who is going to take care of them, who's going to protect them, who's going to meet their needs except for those parents. That's it. That's the only source for all needs they could even imagine. When they get three or four, they start realizing, well, the grandparents are pretty generous. That's because they don't have to wipe your butt or spank you. That's why. Because <laughs> they get to send you home. That's why they're extremely generous. It doesn't matter if you are the widow, if you are the Pharisee who believes that you are safe because you've done all the spiritual work. It doesn't matter if you're the rich young ruler who thinks you're safe because, one, you try your best, or two, because, you know, I've got other options. See, the saddest thing about the rich young ruler is that he walks away. He walks away. Would you rather have everything in your life right now, or would you rather have eternal life? And he goes, and walks off. And, of course, the response of Jesus was, it's harder for... A rich man turned to the kingdom than it is for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. Wow. Has nothing to do with money. Has nothing to do with it. It's harder, it's impossible for someone to fully trust in God if they believe they have other options. See, there's a theme in the scriptures most of us are blind to. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, that we would work out our, our salvation in fear and trembling. What is that about? The Apostle Paul weaves us through all of his epistles. There is an idea of uncertainty that comes with salvation. Meaning, if we're going to leave our safety, if I'm going to give up, well, I know that I'm going to heaven because I was taught blah, 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 blah. I, I said the prayer in Romans, and, you know, I, I'm sinless, and I'm not like this person, and I tithe, and I serve in the church, and I'm a pastor. If I'm willing to give that up, and, it, well, you know, I'll be fine in life because I've got my savings account, and I've got my business. Well, I'll be fine in life because I'm really smart. I'm not stupid like that guy. And if I put all of these things down, and I stand here with no security, except for this thing called grace. Meaning, I believe I'm safe because I hope that I'm safe. Because really, all I've ever had is nothing. All of my intelligence or my study or my education or my spiritual practices or my money or my friends or my connections, none of that really means anything. Because the moment I die, all of that's gone anyway. What if I realize the only thing I have at all is hope? The only way I'm ever going to enter into the kingdom of heaven anyway is just like a child. A child who can't problem solve their way out of it. A child who can't pay the bills. A child who can't 
fix it with themselves, a problem, who can't just turn to someone else to fix it. The only way I'm ever going to enter the kingdom of heaven is like a child, someone who is so fully dependent. All that I have is hope. I'm not sure if you guys have had kids yet. If you haven't, you're blessed and highly favored. If you have, you're also blessed, just in a different way, right? (laughs) If you think about the widow, okay, put yourself in the seat of the judge. If you've had children or friends who had children, how persistent are they? When they want something, how many times will they ask you for it? I say the same thing to my kids. You ask me one more time, it's a no. Right? Leave me alone. I'm watching the game. <laughs> I will get it at commercial. <laughs> right? And I will run and get it at commercial because if not, they will not leave me alone. Right? The only people in your life who you've ever experienced who are like the widow are young children. What happens when that, when that little two-year-old becomes 14 or 17 or 21 or 30? They're, they've got other options. I'm glad that Rachel will stay at our house until she's 40. Uh, she will not get married to any of your sons, okay? <laughs> and she's always going to come to dad because she's going to need dad for a long time. The moment she doesn't come to me, it's going to be a hard moment. Do you see it? Thank you, (laughs) father-in-law. There's a connection that Luke's putting between all of these parables. It's the children. The key to understanding all these parables is that little snippet. He He just puts it in. It has nothing to do, seemingly, with the other parables. He slips it right in there. This is the key. It doesn't matter what we have. You can be intelligent and still trust God. You can have buku money and still trust God. You can go to school and be a pastor or whatever. You can be the best Christian and still have God. But there's a key, though. You can have all those things and still get saved if, here it is, if, in the deepest part of you, you know and you live as if your only option your only hope, the only fixer, the only true hope I have, the only source I have is God. And every time I catch myself with a problem or with a fear or with a a pain in my life and I'm turning to other solutions, if I'm going to turn to my work, if I'm going to turn to my money, to my friends, if I'm going to turn to my my intelligence, if I'm going to turn to my, you know, this is a dangerous sign. There has to be a space inside of us in the deepest place where we are like children and the only place where I really believe my hope is. Because all this is good. I want all of these things for you. But they're only good. They're only helpful. They're only useful if on the inside I know that my only hope is here. And the moment I catch myself trying to deal with trauma or pain or fear by trying to turn to any other option, That has to be fixed. That's dangerous. It's called idolatry. The moment I begin to turn to any other source to fix my problems the way that, to fix my world. Would you stand with me this morning? So Father, we just come to you this morning and idolatry is such a tricky thing because 
we each look to different things, different hopes. We each have different saviors. Whatever that thing is in our life that we, are, that we turn to first, when there is pain, when there is a problem, when there is an issue, when there is fear, when there is pain, Lord, if we turn to ourselves, if we turn to our spouse first, if we turn to our money first, to our education, to our intelligence first, if we feel safe because we're better Christians than that person or we're sinless than that one, anywhere we turn besides the vulnerable space of hoping in your grace, meet us there. It will take time, but we ask that we would trust you more than anyone in our lives. Trust your grace more than any person, more than ourselves, more than any resource or or gifting, or ability, or opportunity, any relationship. We pray, Lord, that we'd be people who would come to you like children. You are our only 